0: Hello, this is Not About Food, and we have made it to episode 10. I am so excited for you all to listen to my chat with Alex, they're one of my favourite people. You'll hear about Alex's experience with chronic pain, but we also reminisce about our teenage hospital shenanigans. Funnily enough as well... I got to work in the crisis team at my new job, only to find that someone who worked on the adolescent ward I was on at 17 with Alex works at the same unit as I do now. So that was weird, a small world, but also kind of, damn, look, I have come full circle, which is kind of a bit of a mind-boggling concept. Anyway. If you're enjoying Not About Food, please rate, review and share and keep us motivated to keep making more episodes. Trigger warnings are in the show notes, of course. So here we go. Episode 10, EDs and chronic pain. This is so exciting. So my guest today is my good friend Alex, who I would not know if it wasn't for the fact I had an eating disorder. And one of the best things that came out of my first hospital admission so it's really exciting to have them here hey Alex hello how are you yeah this is this is a bit weird haven't seen (laughs) haven't seen you in a while and um yeah it's the start starting a podcast is always kind of awkward at the
1: beginning (laughs) (laughs) well you've just instantly made me think of all the games of Scrabble we must have played together so that's a nice memory I think (laughs)
0: one of the first things you ever said directly to me was oh please scrabble with you Phoebe
1: <laughs> and
0: I think the first thing I said to you was I love your hair
1: oh it was
0: well, red and crimped I think yeah it would have been at that point yeah oh 11 over 11 years ago now
1: yeah I thought about that earlier as well and it was uh spooky
0: <laughs> yeah um we were babies we really were we didn't feel like babies at the time I don't think but um
1: No, not at all. Fifteen and (laughs)
0: seventeen, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So we're going to talk about a lot of things, I'm sure. But the basis of our conversation today is going to be Alex's experience with chronic pain and how that influenced their eating disorder and kind of linked into it. Because so many aspects of our life can influence our relationship with food and our bodies. And I thought this would be an interesting one. So I got in contact and they very gracefully agreed to do it. So do you want to start by telling us a bit about your experience of an ED and then also your chronic pain?
1: Yeah, so I think I've probably suffered with some form of disordered eating around a similar amount of time to the pain that I've experienced as well. So I have had sort of various flare-ups of bulimia, binge eating and sort of restrictive eating and that started when I was probably around 12. So it's been a while um, and it hasn't really been a constant thing for me but it is something that kind of wears its head at difficult points in my life. Um, So particularly my first year at university was when things had got really quite tricky and I was lucky enough to find an absolutely amazing therapist who kind of helped me work through stuff so things got a lot easier there. Getting a good therapist is so hard. I mean yeah I waited two and a half years to see her. Um, I was referred when I made the transition from uh, living in Norwich to moving to Manchester and yeah it took me until I started third year to actually get an appointment with her but she was absolutely amazing.
0: So that was a NHS referral?
1: Yeah so the classic thing of being discharged when you turn 18 um, and then having to kind of work your way back into the system yeah which took a very long time so I think I was 22 when I first kind of started seeing her Damn. And
0: I thought when I was discharged from CAMS at just as I turned 18, I was like, it took six months before I was seen by anyone else. But um, six months doesn't seem as bad <laughs> now. You've said how long it took you. Yeah. So I know when we, you know, when we met in hospital, you weren't admitted for an ED, but it was something that was or had already manifested in you, at least you know, the disordered eating side of things. How was it to be around? me and other patients with eating disorders and not being able to really um, say that you struggle as well.
1: I think it it was tricky because I think the kind of general patients at one point I think there was only about four of us on a ward of maybe what 14 15 people.
0: Yeah it was something like that and yeah there was a period which drove me absolutely nuts of nine ED patients and then just a few general that really changes the dynamic of the ward I think.
1: Yeah and I think it was tricky as well kind of having to go through the usual monitoring I mean I had my weight checked probably two or three times a week obviously not to the same level as the kind of ED patients but there wasn't really an understanding that that could be something that was tricky for me because I had been admitted for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've also experienced that since with kind of other health issues that I am straight away really quite frustrated. If one of the first things a medical professional asks me to do is set on the, uh, step on the scales, because I don't think there's still much understanding that people that aren't underweight can, can find that a difficult thing to do.
0: I remember as well in your you know late teens-ish struggling really with back pain and you would go to the doctors and their solution would be lose weight go on a diet.
1: Yeah and unfortunately until I was kind of put in touch with I'm really really lucky at the moment because I'm working with so many fantastic specialists but My symptoms started when I was 11, so I'm 26 now. So it's taken me, you know, 15 years. I'm at a point where I've now experienced the chronic pain longer than I haven't experienced it. So it has, yeah, it has been a really tricky journey. And the back pain was one of the the things that kind of first manifested. I have had so many doctors (laughs) tell me after, you know, calculating my BMI, I'm I'm a I'm a curvy girl I'm sort of pretty tall I've got uh quite big boobs um none of that is accounted for in BMI at all Mm -hmm. um and it feels like quite often they would weigh me calculate that and whatever my problem was the suggestion would be that I needed to lose weight and exercise more but I've thought about it quite a lot since you kind of invited me to come and talk about this stuff that it has been so rare that a medical professional before suggesting diet and exercise has asked what my lifestyle is like first so through various kind of stages at one point I was fully vegan and swimming three times a week and walking absolutely everywhere and I would still be told that I needed to adjust my diet and exercise more but without anyone actually asking what I was already doing. And I think that kind of attitude and that problem led to me for a very long time feeling like I was doing something wrong, and I could do whatever they recommended. And it still didn't fix me. And I think that's, that's part of the issue. Like the the only thing that has really helped me is extensive surgeries and help from, you know, two specialists that are really, really brilliant and trained to work with my condition. I have endometriosis. I was diagnosed when I was 23, um, but I'd been experiencing symptoms that I now know to be related to endometriosis since I was 11. Through getting that diagnosis, I've also been um, diagnosed with fairly severe hypermobility. Part of what has damaged me the most in the long run was the absolutely stubborn recommendation from uh, a GP when I lived in Manchester that swimming was going to fix everything it was going to fix my hip pain Um, it was going to help me with uh, the cramps that I was getting it was just going to make everything better so that was the period where I was swimming three times a week and kind of leaving the pool and thinking I'm still in so much pain. Why am I still in so much pain? It must be because I'm doing something wrong. And I was then referred to a rheumatologist who essentially said, you've been swimming on a hip that is really, really not, it's not well. Um, I'd had dislocations and subluxations in my hip um, and essentially still swimming on that. was causing a hell of a lot of damage and at periods in my life I've had to use a walking stick Um, there was a point where I thought I was going to need a wheelchair and actually it turned out that I was going to say I was misdiagnosed I wasn't diagnosed at all essentially I, I had a surgery and they found that I had cysts that were leaning on my sciatic nerve so that was what was partially causing all of the pain in my hip. And every time that I was swimming, it was causing more and more inflammation in that area. Yeah, so I've I've been through it in that sense. Um, and it was almost liberating to get that diagnosis and find out that actually there was nothing I could have done that would have changed that.
0: Yeah, I, that was something I was going to ask actually about getting diagnosed. And I feel like this applies to a lot of things, mental and physical, is that You know something's wrong, but you're worried it is just you and you're at fault or you're broken or whatever. And then when you finally get terminology for it, there is an element of being, thank God for that. I wasn't making it up. And maybe not necessarily all the time, but maybe now I know something can be done to alleviate it even just a little bit.
1: Yeah, and, and I remember kind of coming around from my surgery. Unfortunately, it, the, the I was going to say the first one. So the one in the middle really um, wasn't performed properly. They didn't do the kind of recommended surgery method for endometriosis removal. So within nine months, I had recurrence. It came back. It actually grew back kind of more than it, it had started off with even to get that surgery was a year of kind of ringing the department every week and saying I'm still in pain this is still awful and mentally that was incredibly challenging. Um, I'm really lucky that my mum is an absolute angel um, and was able to kind of pick up some of that advocacy for me because I got so worn down with it um, but the day that they were able to refer me for that surgery, I was told, fine, we'll do it, but I don't think we're going to find anything. And I often think of a parallel universe where I go, okay, well then I'm not going to put myself through that. The NHS is under so much strain. I'm not going to waste your time. I trust your medical opinion. Off I go. And actually I knew that something was wrong. So I signed the paperwork and I waited nine and a half months and they gave me the surgery. And I remember kind of coming round and speaking to a nurse and saying, what happened? Is everything OK? Um, I was told the surgery was going to take an hour and a half if they didn't find anything. I came round three hours later. So straight away, I knew that something had either gone wrong or they had found something. And the relief when she said, we found endometriosis, we have, we've used uh, diathermy which I believe is like lasers to kind of burn it off yeah and actually just crying and crying and crying and speaking to my mom and saying I knew I wasn't crazy so yeah it um the medical industry is lacking so much nuance um yeah and I think I think in in the past my previous medical history has really damaged the way that medical professionals see me because I have a lot of scars. I have a diagnosis of extreme anxiety and uh, an OCD. So on paper, I have read so many medical letters that have been sent to me that start off with, uh, Alex is a, I don't know, 24 year old female. She is overweight and suffers from anxiety. She claims to experience pelvic pain. Um, And it's only in retrospect that I can look through all of those things. And it is so obvious that they think that my anxiety has got away with me or I'm hysterical in some way.
0: Yeah, like you're a hypochondriac and whatever you're experiencing, either it doesn't exist or you're greatly exaggerating. So I have learned a bit about what endometriosis is. But for anyone who doesn't know, are you able to explain it a bit?
1: Yeah, of course. So It is when tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus somehow. uh, Very little is known about how it happens and why it happens, um, but that becomes attached to other parts of the body. In most cases, it tends to be um, areas within the pelvis, so around ovaries, in the kind of rectovaginal space um, around the the outside of the uterus. But it has now Endo has now been found in every other organ in the body. Um, Up until quite recently, it had been found in every other area in the body, apart from the spleen. But they did recently also find it in the spleen. So even that's not safe now for (laughs) for people with endo. Um, Quite worryingly, it has been found on the brain, um, liver, kidneys, lungs is actually quite common as well. Um, and in the process, if you are a person who menstruates, the endometriosis that is attached to other parts of the body also behaves as it would if it was inside the uterus. So it can swell, become inflamed, it can bleed, but it doesn't shed in the way that it does when you have a period. So instead of the tissue kind of being flushed out naturally, it becomes attached um, and then in the process of you having a period, it can actually form growths that then end up linking your organs together. Um, and those are called adhesions. So in my case, unfortunately, quite a lot of areas in my pelvis were actually fused together. So when they did my surgery, they found a lot of scar tissue from where the endo had kind of tried to shed and couldn't, um, and it ends up getting stuck. So I was found to have lots of adhesions, lots of organs that are fused together, which definitely doesn't mean that if they do the surgery, they're not going to find anything, kind of notably. Um, they, they found so much that I was operated on twice. I'm still needing quite a lot of aftercare now. So I guess the main thing is that if you think that something's wrong, there's a good chance that you're right about that.
0: Being mentally ill, especially when you've been admitted to an acute unit it's like you go to the doctors about anything physical and I've had this as well and they go it's just your anxiety and you're just completely completely written off which is just so infuriating I don't know if it's something that's probably more common as well with um, people who are assigned female at birth as well because like you said hysterical worrying exaggeration which is just that's gross (laughs) so how did you know your experience of chronic pain link with your relationship with food and your body
1: one of the things that I've kind of been thinking quite a lot about is what's known within the endo community as endo belly which at points I have looked maybe four or five months pregnant because especially before my surgery, my stomach became so swollen. I had periods of time where I had two different wardrobes for the days when it wasn't swollen and the days where it was. And that was especially difficult. Obviously, now I know that it's because there was just so much tissue inside my pelvis that was just swelling and inflamed. But I remember going to a different doctor than my own um the key thing here is that the GP I have now is an absolute angel but she I believe was on maternity leave and I saw someone else um and I had kind of approached him and said look I'm really worried my stomach is really swollen it's more swollen on one side than the other is very very visibly um inflamed and one of the first things he told me was I don't know how you can tell obviously thinking that I either always look like that because I am you know kind of chubby and the second thing he asked me was um, to cut out gluten. Uh, I have had numerous allergy screenings I've been tested for celiac disease and all sorts of things that can be triggered by diet Uh, and there you know there was nothing I have had to be quite stubborn in replying to suggestions of what, what are very restrictive diets um, and had to say, I don't consume as much dairy as I used to. I don't consume as much gluten as I used to. I don't eat red meat. And those are kind of the main things um, along with alcohol and coffee that have been found to trigger endo. Quite often diets will be suggested to me and I look at it and I just think that is so that's going to cause me to need to read every packet of everything I eat and ask questions about the content of food, which to me, I very much link together with when things were bad for me in terms of my eating. And that kind of stomach swelling also really affected how I saw myself, which is a tricky thing. Um, I'm very much involved in kind of body positivity and yeah, I'm really, really focused on actually accepting the fact that my body has been through so much and it does so much for me. So if I want to eat cake, I'm, I'm going to eat cake. <laughs> um, because I've found that restricting anything really just ends up with binging or, or just going further and further down the path of, Yeah, restriction.
0: It's a, those things are all such a vicious cycle as well. It's like, I think eating disorders are often thought of as being either one extreme or the other, when Mm. a lot of the time it's a, you know, a pendulum between extremes, restriction or binging, and they kind of come
1: hand in hand for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. So after your surgeries,
0: are you generally, is your pain lessened now?
1: Yeah, I had got to a point where it was just wildly unmanageable almost every day. Because things escalated quite slowly, you kind of just learn that, okay, I'm in, I don't know, six out of 10 pain today, but I can't have another day off work and I just need to work through it. And as that kind of pain scale gets higher you just sort of think okay this is what I'm dealing with now this is just how it's going to be and it's only now that I have days where I'm not in as much pain um, that I realize how traumatic that was there was a point most of the time with endo people have flare-ups and there are other periods where the pain isn't as bad and what had happened with me maybe nine months before I had my most recent surgery was that I had a flare up and it just never went away it stayed and it stayed and it stayed and then I had my surgery so you kind of get used to what you're dealing with but when I spoke to my GP about one period of time where it was particularly bad she'd kind of said if you had never felt this pain before what would you do and it suddenly came on as bad as it was what would you do and my reaction was I would think I was dying and I would go to the hospital and she said, right, we're we're admitting you then, that's what we're going to do. And even being at that point, I had quite a lot of admissions before I then had my surgery because unfortunately the waiting lists are catastrophic. Um, The pandemic obviously hasn't helped with that. A lot of surgeries were rescheduled or cancelled and I, again, was quite lucky. I had mine in October, so... I was one of the first people they got in once theatres opened again and that was because i had got to a point where i couldn't go to the toilet without crying um i was frequently throwing up from the pain that i was in i was waking up in absolutely unbearable pain and you know like cold sweats so that was all really really difficult
0: and i imagine being so unwell physically and therefore that affecting how you can look after yourself and how you feed yourself can then plant a seed in the brain so to speak as to say well I've unintentionally been restricting because I'm so unwell but then it's really hard to go back to looking after yourself once you're perhaps a bit more physically
1: capable Yeah. And I think I, you know, things have really improved for me since I had that surgery, which is absolutely amazing, but it's also been a lot of work. I've been lucky in that period of time. So particularly throughout the first lockdown in sort of March, 2020, I was living in a house share with a really, really lovely close friend and her and her partner were very aware of how difficult it was for me. Um, I wasn't living with my partner at the time, so I was away from him. We didn't see each other for three and a half months. Emotionally, on top of all the pain, I was just really not in a good way at all. And unfortunately, being able to kind of stand in the kitchen and make something to eat had become really, really challenging. I've been really lucky that I have been very well looked after. Um, And I think people have an understanding that especially when you're in a lot of pain, you do need a little bit of looking after. But I know, especially when I was at university, I was sort of unchecked in my first year. I'd made a few friends, but we weren't really that close yet. I hadn't found anyone that I could really open up to about it. And in conjunction with being in so much pain so much of the time, unfortunately my studies came first and looking after myself came second which led to a lot of just really really not sensible choices in regard to food and how i was looking after myself and that was also a period of time where the binging had become quite bad because i would go days and days really not eating much at all finally have the energy to go to the shop buy a load of of snacks and then just kind of sit and eat them all and I remember just having the feeling of emptiness and I know that's something that a lot of people who experience binge eating kind of feel and it's really only in retrospect that I recognize that as being a really difficult time for my ED because I was talking to the doctor about it and again they look at me they look at my weight and it's not a concern when actually I then worked through it with amazing therapist who said I really don't think you were very well then and I was going oh no I was in so much pain and she's like no like in in your head I don't think you were very well so it does really impact the way that I function because of course it does again before my most recent surgery I had kind of become so so low with the amount of pain and everything that was going on and having a conversation with my doctor about whether I needed to add antidepressants to my already quite hefty cocktail of medications and kind of stressing to her that actually I, I felt like my outlook and the way that I was feeling about everything was completely understandable given the pain I was in and I was miserable and waiting for this surgery that could be next week it could be next year it could be two years from now and not knowing when that relief was going to come and actually thinking it's okay for me to feel so anxious and so sad about that and so on edge about that that I don't think it's fair on me to decide that that's depression because I actually felt like it was completely justified given the situation. So I sort of resisted that. Another thing that I thought of as well is I had quite a lot of hormone management to try and kind of control stuff with my periods and with my pain. Um, I was put through a chemically induced menopause when I was 24, which was just a really, really horrible time. Um, But that amount of hormones and the kind of peaks and troughs of that also really affected my appetite and my weight. So there have been times where my body has made me feel so completely out of control with every aspect of it. And when it came down to it, physically unable to really do much food was the only thing I had left that I could sort of control. And in some ways, that's brilliant now because I have a better relationship with it. And if one of the only things I can do in the day is eat a delicious meal, then that's a win as far as I'm concerned. But when it felt like everything else was just completely spinning out of control, that was when my restriction became worse, which looking back at it now makes complete sense.
0: I like that spin on it that you just did, where if all you can do is control your food, but in a positive way, because I think eating disorders are so linked with the idea of control. Or, you know, I kind of called it an illusion of control, because in the end, it really is controlling you. But I'd never looked at it in a way that everything seems, you know, horrible and bleak for whatever personal reasons you have. But if you can enjoy food, then embrace that. I'd never really thought of that as being a type of control in a like a positive, healthy way.
1: Yeah. And I feel like I've, I've done quite a lot of work around listening to what my body needs and sort of I guess, loosely intuitive eating, really, and in a position where physically, I mean, especially after my surgery, the the most recent one, I was really, really poorly. I caught um, gastroenteritis while I was in the hospital, um, which I incubated for a good few days and then kind of hit me with full force. And after stomach surgery, that is absolutely the last thing that you need. So that made the recovery incredibly difficult. But then kind of getting back to being able to sit down with my partner and have a nice meal just felt absolutely incredible. And since then, especially with lockdown, especially given kind of physical illness and limitations, it really is a comfort now and not, not in the way that I'm using it to bury things in the way that it's something I take. A lot of joy in and I think that transition has been really really important for me.
0: I'm struggling for words just because it's something that I think I also do you know sometimes including the other day after a rough day at work I was eating things I didn't want to because I thought well the sugar <laughs> the sugar will make things better briefly and then I'll feel horrible about it but no absolutely joy in food when you've struggled with it for whatever reason. It's so important. Like when my dad had all of his surgeries and he, you know, he had to have those joyful ensures that ED patients get so often. And then when he started eating real food again, it was one really overwhelming. It kind of came up in the episode about ARFID, about when you've had such a restrictive diet and then you try other things. And then it's like, in a sensory way, it's really overpowering. But yeah, like, It's, you know, it's a rediscovery. And yeah, to see it in a positive light and not in a scary way is just brilliant and so important because of how food is so massive to nearly every aspect of our life and culture.
1: Yeah. And I think you'll probably be aware of this having worked in a kind of cafe service environment that a big turning point for me was managing a coffee shop and being especially close with another colleague who was quite, I don't want to say rebellious, it's maybe not the right word, but quite resistant of just the diet industry and fat phobia and all sorts of things like that. So they were sensible, basically. Yeah, yeah, she was sensible. And just the amount of times that you would ask someone what they wanted to order, fair enough, they'd order their coffee. And it was primarily when it was more than one woman in a group so two ladies out for lunch and there would be this almost like political debate of oh I'm going to be quite naughty I think I'm going to have a bit of cake oh but I'll only have a bit of cake if you have a bit of cake because you know I'm trying to be good and just almost being on the other side of that and being like this is bullshit if you want the cake eat the cake our carrot cake is incredible I recommend it you will actually regret it if you don't have it That doesn't make you bad it makes you a person who would like some cake and almost being on the other side of that and just thinking actually this just looks so wrong if you want something you should have it and that made me realize how much of that narrative was was in my brain and it's it's something that's come up in my job recently so i'm a a support worker for vulnerable children I work with a lot of people who have had um, either mental health difficulties or physical health difficulties that have meant they've uh, disengaged from school and we're sort of reintegration, we're very specialist um, and I absolutely love my job but there are times within that office of people who are really aware of mental health kind of stuff actually do that same thing of oh I would like that but oh no I'm being good and I've got to a point where I call it out and just say like, this is not a healthy way to be thinking about things fair enough if it's in your head, but other people don't need to be around it. Don't bring us into that narrative because you're seeking reassurance that you're not the worst person in the world because they only had normal Coke and not diet Coke. And now you're feeling like you've carrying so much shame around it and quite frankly we've all got better things to do have you ever had it when working in a
0: coffee shop where you go oh would you like chocolate on your cappuccino and i said yeah i'll be bad today
1: yeah like or you've asked them if they want chocolate on the cappuccino and they look at you like you've just said arsenic (laughs) (laughs) it used to really really bug me yeah yeah it's it's chocolate dust
0: i didn't say do you want a full-size Toblerone on your cappuccino which I think would be a beautiful combination oh it um, really would <laughs> <laughs> um literally just a little bit of chocolate powder that was one that always got me um and I've literally only a few weeks ago left my most recent cafe job and yeah whenever you'd hear these diet culturey things like oh, I'm going to be good or I'm going to be a devil today and those kinds of things. Part of me would just be like the ED brain of, see, it is wrong to eat cake. And then the other side would be like, my God, this is ridiculous. And I want to do everything I can to fight it, including how I see myself and my body and what I eat, because I want to be detached from this really ridiculous, harmful narrative that affects literally everyone but especially women, especially people with sign female at birth.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why I came back to the word rebellious when I was talking about my colleague, because, yeah, it it did just seem that way. And also seeing how being in such a central environment where food is the the main reason that people are coming there, like the Wi-Fi wasn't great. Uh, It definitely wasn't, you know, because of anything else. And actually seeing how some people talk about that around their children and just finding that to be a really difficult thing as well. And just thinking like, I don't think that's right that this this kid is like four or five and you're telling them that they can't have a bit of cake because it's bad for you. And again, kind of in my job now, some of the kids might say things that their parents have said to them about stuff and it does just make you think okay that's actually really damaging
0: when i was working in supported housing there were a few instances of the teenage like the teenage residents restricting their eating or whatever and in that line of work you're not really meant to disclose your own personal experiences which i found really hard but to try and address what they were doing with their diet and why they felt the need to do it and what they got from it to try and well that nip it in the bud idea because it is that early intervention that's important and since you can't really get much early intervention within the NHS I feel like that's kind of our our position now especially working with younger people
1: yeah and I think it's it's really tricky to think about how much stuff has changed in those those 11 years I mean we were in the the heyday of a uh, a Labour government, which was somewhat empathetic. Um, I know that I was an NHS patient and I assume that, that you were as well, that somehow now feel like we won the jackpot of being admitted to a private six grand a week hospital for, for months on end. And my mum my certainly never had to pay for anything other than petrol to drive and come and see me or take me on leave. And actually knowing that I work with some people who needed that months ago, years ago, is a really, really difficult position because we're referring people to CAMS and knowing that there's at least a six-month waiting list before someone even assesses you, let alone giving you the care and the support that you need. And crisis teams that say, couldn't wait until Monday and actually finding how vital things like be and mind and cooth. so you know any form of free video counselling is absolutely amazing but also knowing that they need so much more care than what's available is tricky because I I now realise how lucky I was having actually seen adulthood which I you know I'm not 100% sure i I would have done if I didn't have that that care when I needed it and almost again being on the other side of it just thinking I you know it's my responsibility to try and make sure that these guys are getting the support that they need
0: it's not necessarily in the job description but um it means too much for you to think well they need this kind of support and they're not getting it but it's not my job to do it either so I'm just going to leave it I don't think either of us um, have the heart or the lack of heart to do that
1: yeah and I think I think I'm quite lucky with my job so it's kind of mentor focused so our team have been very supportive of the fact that actually sometimes we can say look I've been where you are um, and in, in my old role that was kind of forbidden but now it's it's actually a positive thing if I were three-quarter length sleeves and I'm working with someone who has experienced self-harm because actually I'm not just bullshitting them I'm not just telling them that if they go for a walk and keep a diary it's going to fix everything but that actually there are alternatives that might help and I'm not just a person saying I know how you feel like I I know how you feel (laughs) obviously professionally and personally there are there are boundaries that I stick to um I've got a duty of care to those children. Safeguarding-wise is something I take so seriously, but also being able to discuss things with parents from a position where maybe the young person might not be able to explain properly what's going on, that parents can then ask me those difficult questions particularly about self-harm, suicidal ideation, eating disorders sometimes that allow me to kind of speak to them as someone that's been through it, that kind of almost prevents the child from being the person that has to explain that. And I know in in some cases, the, the young people have brilliant relationships with the people that care for them, but sometimes they don't. And actually being a bit of a bridge between that is something that I think has been really important.
0: Yeah, it's kind kind of an advocacy, um, especially with young people who they haven't found the language to describe how they feel or what they're going through. And we've had a long time to think about that language and how how we apply it to ourselves. So we almost like a translation service.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's a really good way of describing it. Yeah, exactly. And also, I probably won't word this how it would be in a scientific report, but I believe that at that age, kind of up until 16, 17, there's a a big barrier between children kind of understanding the world around them and understanding how that relates to them. It's almost like tunnel vision and trying to explain that right now you might feel like this and I know that everyone tells you to give things time and I will so frequently say I know I'm just being another person who thinks that it's okay to tell you what to do but I work very much on a harm reduction basis. I don't tell people not to do whatever it is that they're doing but I try to encourage ways that they can stay safe whilst doing it whether if they had taken things too far or were putting themselves in serious jeopardy, how they would ask for help, whether they would know to. Um, And that informs how I then proceed with them. So I think it's really important to encourage them to take responsibility for for what they're doing. And actually in a lot of cases, and I know with me as well, it, it seems so easy for everyone else to tell you not to do what you're doing. But it just doesn't work like that. And I think that's where we're well placed in what we're doing, because we we've been there and without sitting there and obviously not putting that on the person that you're working with, but using it in how you work with them.
0: Absolutely. I mean, my new job I got literally because I have been someone with mental health problems who's been in the services and has that experience of relapse and recovery because my title is literally peer support and within at least I'm currently based in the psychiatric hospital but you know it's going to reach out to the community and home treatment team as well it's a bridge between the service users and the clinical staff and again it almost is they don't necessarily have the words we can help them find the words. We don't put the words in their mouths, but part of the recovery process is understanding, you know, maybe the root of where these things come from and how you can manage in a less harmful way. Yeah, definitely. Going back to where we were talking about, um, you know, the chronic pain and how it affected your relationship with food and I was thinking with the mental health side of things and having been in a lot of treatment and probably trying to put a lot of effort into your recovery and your body still not playing ball did you kind of feel like why am I putting in this effort and my body still is broken for lack of a better word
1: (laughs) well I had um I had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago about eating in general, and she also has very, very similar issues. We are like diagnosis twins. It's, it's really, really strange. But she'd been saying how certain foods trigger her and it makes things really difficult and that she was going through a tricky time with it all. And I mentioned that it is so hard to be nice to a body that feels like it's letting you down. And it's a very, very complicated thing. And a lot of the work that I'm now doing with my specialist physio is like self-massage. And it may sound really kind of free love-ish, but actually that has helped a lot because for so long especially my stomach was just this no-go area of of badness and it felt like it was filled with bees and barbed wire and other really not very nice things so when you feel like that and you internalize that not only does it make the the issue worse because you're tensing everything up and you're responding to it negatively but mentally that's a very difficult thing to overcome and it's understandable that if your body feels like it's falling apart you don't feel great about it but instead of punishing it which I think is primarily what I was doing before I have worked really hard on kind of thanking it and if I'm in pain almost responding to that by saying something's wrong I've got this condition, my body is just alerting me to the fact that things might be inflamed or I've twisted something in the wrong way or I might be at a certain point in my cycle and almost saying like thank you for ringing that alarm bell and saying that something's wrong. Whereas before the main thing on my mind was kind of how much I wanted to destroy it and I think that almost became like self-harm really not resting when I should have been resting I would be in a lot of pain and I would categorically ignore it because I would need to be at work I would need to be seeing my family I would need to be cleaning whatever but I definitely wasn't listening when my body was telling me that something was wrong because my body was telling me something was wrong almost all of the time. And that made it very, very difficult to be grateful for it and to be anything other than judgmental and pissed off with it. And that's been a really big transition for me. And I think the fact that I have been in less pain has freed up that space for recognizing what it's like to not be in that pain all the time and being grateful for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I by no means can I compare my physical issues with yours. But through my ED, I did bugger up my digestive system (laughs) to a degree, um, which isn't uncommon. And, you know, years into recovery, I still have still can have a lot of pain in my stomach, especially amongst other symptoms. And sometimes I'm just like, look, you're unhappy when I wasn't eating. You're unhappy when I am eating like I can't win this isn't fair but to flip that on its head i can also go considering everything my body experienced the fact it's still going and it's still pretty healthy and the resilience it's shown actually i should be grateful for that even if the ed part is like why aren't you more physically damaged
1: yeah and i i think that's where the kind of warped almost like self sabotage that we have no control over really is something that kind of lasts with it so especially after my surgery when I got really unwell within a couple of weeks I did lose a lot of weight because I was unable to eat and having to quiet and down the much much smaller than it would have been a few years ago but still the part of me that was telling me that was a good thing and that really shook me because I now consider myself to be recovered. It's not something that I struggle with day to day anymore, but just realizing how delicate that balance is and how it's like a a light that just switches on in your brain and goes, hang on a minute, no, this is actually a good thing. And having a few weeks of just unlearning that again, because I, I don't want to be unwell. And especially after years of gaslighting in the medical community about there being nothing wrong with me it's a lot to to resist really um and it turns out that even at my lowest weight when my BMI wasn't as much of a concern um I was so physically weak that the exercise they had told me to do I just couldn't I could barely get up and down the stairs and actually being on the outside of that and thinking I think the doctors would have preferred me to be like that than to be clinically obese and riding my bike and walking everywhere and gleefully cooking and enjoying myself. It's, it's really messed up. It really is.
0: Heaven forbid anyone enjoys food, especially without a side portion of guilt and shame that comes with it. Um, it's like well, okay, you eat this thing, but you're not going to feel good about it. It seems to be mantra within society and in the medical community. And I definitely want to have, you know, a guest come on talking about intuitive eating and because I, I know about it, but it's not something I currently practice. And I like the idea of practicing, but I know it's kind of a, can be a balancing act, especially if you've had problems with food before, but there's also, you know, I was listening to, an anti-diet nutritionist talk about. I can't remember what she called it. But it was kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but in relation to food. And this top, the very top of the pyramid, so the smallest bit, was nutrition, because there's so much more to food: adequacy, enjoyment, all of those kinds of things. That you're better off eating "quote unquote" unhealthy food than not eating at all or n- eating nutritious things. supposedly like. Nutrient dense things, but having a really awful relationship with food in your body. And I really like the way she put that because sometimes I'm just like, I know that I sh- could eat something, you know, a, f- a fruit related snack, but actually I'm feeling a little bit sad. I want to cheer myself up with a cookie or something. And that is still serving a purpose because nutrients isn't the only purpose of food.
1: No. And community and how you relate to people as well is a massive thing it's one of the only times that you get to sit down with people and enjoy something together and I know lockdown has made that much harder so why why make that thing on a special occasion a pizza that has the middle bit cut out of it and is filled with salad and why i just i i think it's so important to have those things that feel like treats like you say like oh i think a cookie would be like a little hug for my body and being able to enjoy that is magical after so long of of not being able to
0: it gives you that wonderful wonderful dopamine that some of us don't have the receptors to produce adequately and maybe something you know something sweet something yummy and especially if you can make it not an event but I quite frequently now we can sit outside cafes me and a friend will walk my dog and then go and get a coffee from where I used to work and get something nice to eat and we could get salad or something but actually that cappuccino brownie Looks really good. So I'm going to get that and I'm going to enjoy the social aspect. And when you're struggling with an eating disorder, it has such a knock on effect with your relationships and your social life that I'm going to damn embrace it. (laughs) I missed out for too long.
1: Yeah. And that cappuccino brownie, by the way, sounds incredible.
0: (laughs) Right. I was so excited. It's like two of my favorite things put together. (laughs) It's the dream. Why would we deny ourselves of that? It's very bizarre. Exactly, yeah. This is kind of relating to, you know, your history of mental health in general. And it's something I've really been thinking about since working on psych wards the last couple of weeks of remembering when you were at your worst mentally. And you know it was you, but it's kind of like you're remembering something you watched on TV because it's so alien that I could ever have been that bad and I'm not even talking just in terms of eating because there's a whole plethora of issues that I've been overcoming including things I see on the wards now and I think no that wasn't me That can't have be me because I'm so far removed from that
1: it's a tricky one it really is and I definitely get the almost out of body experience side of it and I think in total, I spent 10 months in hospital and it can be broken down into, in my mind, just almost like images. And actually what I remember the most is the, the laughs and the, the pranks and just absolutely silly, ridiculous things. So I remembered the other day, me and uh, Chris having a cream cracker eating contest. <laughs> And when I say Chris, it's going to sound like I meant another teenager, but no, no, no. No. He was a member of staff and I remember beating him. But I also remember him having the most frank discussion with me about self-harm that actually allowed me to turn a massive corner. And I owe him a huge thanks for that because it got to a point where he just went, well, I'm just wondering how far this is going to go. Because if you keep getting worse and you keep doing more, then... what's gonna happen? Shit no one's ever put it like that before I haven't really thought about that because everyone was so concerned with just telling me to stop doing it but actually he allowed me to think about what would happen if I didn't stop and that was more important. There were definitely some absolutely hilarious moments um, (laughs) that I you know still think about relatively frequently and do make me smile but of course there were also really really difficult bits and unfortunately we found out that someone we were in hospital with passed away because of their condition and that was absolutely heartbreaking and again just another example of the looking glass and thinking fuck, like we were we were poorly and you can talk about it now as I went through really bad mental health when I was a teenager, but we're not teenagers now. We are fully fledged adults who have managed to turn it into something positive. And I love my job. I love what I do. I think the people I work with are absolutely incredible. And one thing that is frequently discussed is the empathy and the fact that I just get it. And it wasn't until I'd been in my job for about six months before I. I was gonna say come, came clean like it was a shameful thing, but it's not. But before I said I get it because like I was them, that's why I get it. And the people that I work with just going, "All right, cool," and me expecting it to be like this massive thing. And especially when I first started working in the environment that I do, I've been in for a little over two years now. It almost felt like a a coming out of saying. I have previously been a person with, with really tricky mental health and somehow thinking that that was going to jeopardise my job, but the fact that I had been there and the fact that that could be seen as a risk that they were taking. And actually, the more I got to know my colleagues, everyone had a thing. Everyone had either a previous addiction, OCD, massive, massive trauma, self-harm, and I came into that environment thinking, I'm the only one that isn't fixed. I'm the broken one. Everyone else here is absolutely fine. And then it turned out that everyone was just as, as wonky as I was. And that was why they were incredible at their jobs. It was why they got what the kids were saying.
0: Yeah, for sure. Even though the point of my job is that I have my experiences, I'm also worried about what to disclose and how much or whether they think, Oh, she's not capable because she's not a hundred percent recovered or whatever. Um, and yesterday at work, I had my first my first panic attack at work and starting a new job because there was a patient who was physically unwell, so I uh, understandably freaked out, not to the degree I would have done once upon a time. And I was like, oh God, this isn't gonna make a good impression the fact that I've walked away from service users and um, gone and hid in an office. but you no. Know, it was fine everyone was really nice and that was that was yeah such a relief and it's funny you bring up Chris amongst other healthcare assistants because it was those people in that position that made me 11 years ago want to work in mental health and in psychiatric hospitals it wasn't the therapists it wasn't the consultants it was the healthcare assistants and that is sort of my role now But, you know, with a therapeutic edge. But it was, yeah, they were the real people that we were around all the time. The ones we saw, the one who supported us through meals, through triggers and stuff. And the consultants you'd see twice a week, they were higher up and they earned more money. But they were not as important to my recovery as the people deemed lower down.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that day to day of just helping the time pass... Like, I, I don't know about you, but when we first were put into lockdown, I found it incredibly, incredibly triggering because you're allowed to go outside for exercise. Other than that, you're in the house and that's that. Seemed so similar to you are an inpatient, you are allowed outside for some exercise, you can walk around the grounds, you can maybe see people a little bit at the weekend but apart from that you're here and it was weird how claustrophobic that felt initially but also a part of my brain kicked in with like this is not my first rodeo I can totally cope with being away from everything and everyone because I have been picked up and plonked down I mean you you were living in Essex at the time Mm -hmm. and your family were quite close. It was a hundred mile drive. Well, 99 mile drive uh, for my family to come and see me. And initially that was absolutely heartbreaking because I was, yeah, I was a kid. I didn't think I was a kid, but I was a kid. And the healthcare assistants were the people that helped fill in the time obviously we had education and i think in some ways that influenced what i now do but they were the people that made us laugh and played games with us and there are some in particular that i remember and you do almost want to like go back and thank them yeah cuz they they were amazing
0: and with the magic of social media i guess it's possible to but it's also you know boundaries but yeah part of me wants to be like if only we could just send a letter back
1: send a recording of this podcast <laughs>
0: well yeah that's exactly what I was thinking it's just like how can I get
1: this to them
0: <laughs> and I think as um as former patients of psychiatric units and like you said we did get lucky not as lucky as people who don't need the admission <laughs> but you know in terms of facilities and stuff and at the time as well it was very much a postcode lottery. And it just so happened when both of us were admitted two weeks apart, there was nowhere else available. And it was too much of a crisis to wait for somewhere cheaper, which, yeah. So yeah, lucky in that sense. Psychiatric units can be daunting. They can be scary. They can be, you know, it sounds like the worst place you could possibly be, but there's good that comes out of it, whether it is just loads of games of Scrabble. Or whether it is taking the piss out of the night staff and pretending someone's run off. (laughs) Do you remember that one? Oh,
1: yeah, I'd forgotten about that. (laughs) Oh, man. And, you
0: know, like you do, they always say, you know, you're not meant to stay in touch with people you're in hospital with. And I understand that. But also when... We met, it was kind of like the dawn of Facebook and we stayed in touch when we went on leave and here we are 11 years later, still in touch. And that is the case with a few people I've met over over the years of my treatment. But yeah, being in hospital is not all horrible. Like I think your first weekend, for some reason we found it hilarious to put cardboard boxes on our heads, spin round and fling them (laughs) off our heads for some reason. When you've got very little to do, you find... Fun in the smallest things like cardboard boxes, like a cat. And now, on the other side, you know, I was playing basketball really terribly with a service user the other day. (laughs) You know, it's not all clinical and miserable. It can be like, let's
1: not pretend. it, It absolutely
0: can be. And it can be a really tough environment, especially a load of teenagers stuck in a house, everyone mentally ill, the drama that comes out of that. lots of drama
1: yeah the uh the excitement if two people started getting on really well and you thought it might turn into a relationship (laughs) because yeah teenagers
0: yeah so I don't yeah psychiatric units not always scary not always a bad place to be in case anyone's panicking
1: no and I think there's so much of um I guess like horror tropes that hinge on either a person being mentally unwell or a person being in a psychiatric hospital is so so damaging like we didn't get hosed down we weren't in padded cells it it wasn't it wasn't like that and actually that would have been the worst thing for us at that point and sometimes it was just making cups of tea for each other or playing badminton in the garden and just just doing stuff but whilst being supported and I guess that's where that environment is so needed now because a lot of people go through very intense therapy and there's no one there to hold the fallout and that was what that environment was so good for that you may have a really really difficult session but then afterwards if you were a bit upset you could just be distracted you could talk about it when you wanted to you could discuss it with other people and also if anything bad then happened after that you were you were safe whereas what I see a lot now is people having kind of person-centered trauma care and then just sort of being told okay we'll see you in two weeks and there's nothing there to hold those people in the meantime because there is there is fallout and there are consequences from kind of uncovering all of that dark stuff and that's where I think part of the issue is I knew when
0: I asked you to do this podcast that we would end up going around the houses
1: in our (laughs) discussion
0: um every time I've had a friend on the podcast it's been the same thing where you start with a topic and then you veer totally the other way and (laughs) that's the that's what makes this organic and real and just a conversation between two old friends before we sign off going back to our main topic of chronic pain is there anything you would say to someone with chronic pain or especially someone with chronic pain and it difficulties with food and their body in, in relation
1: it's so hard to kind of answer that because it's just so incredibly nuanced I guess In terms of seeking diagnosis, track your symptoms if you do think certain foods is something that triggers you just be so so careful in how you manage that. Talk to people about what you think might be happening. The best thing about getting my diagnosis was then finding a community of people who were going through a similar thing but I also know that there are quite a few forums for people who oh god forums how old do I say <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> gonna pop on a message message yeah board. yeah uh, you can probably find them on myspace um, <laughs> people who have specifically got chronic pain that is undiagnosed so seek those out if you're not sure what's going on but you feel like something's up always it's difficult I know I've given a really really bad impression of some of the medical professionals I've worked with but it's reality though
0: isn't it come on
1: yeah and and don't be afraid to say I can't do that because that is going to trigger my eating disorder or have you looked at my records because you might see why what you've just suggested might be a bit problematic in terms of the treatment I have very rarely had an appointment where I've not been taken seriously if I've had someone else there. So either my mum or my partner, just because a lot of the time you may come away from an appointment and feel like, I don't think I've been taken seriously at all. But if you've got someone else to go, there's a bit weird that they said that, wasn't it? And I go, Oh my God, I wasn't crazy. I thought, you know, I've been at the point where I go, oh, I didn't imagine that that actually happened because it can be twisted so much. Chronic pain, understandably affects almost everything very early on when I first started really struggling sort of housebound and just having a, a really shit time was that my mum said I don't care what you eat just eat something if you just want to eat a bowl of quick, have it if you want cream eggs have it like like you say about the kind of hierarchy of needs eating something is better than not eating anything and that then snowballing into not eating anything for days on end so if you fancy something try and eat it um and tell tell people if if you've got people around you it's okay to say i'm struggling this pain is all encompassing and understandably that has affected the way that I'm seeing myself and the way that I'm looking after myself too.
0: I just want to thank you for being so open and candid about this. I say that to guests all the time, but I'm always incredibly grateful. You are a wonderful, wonderful human, and I'm very happy you're in my life.
1: Oh, thank no you. No matter too. That's so sweet. how, how <laughs> it
0: came about. Like I said, there, there are positives to it, and people, people can be that positive. This was wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been lovely.